learning how to navigate, like reading code and debugging code is so easy. Finding a memory leak is so easy compared to understanding another team member's motivation or why they're, you know, doing a certain thing or uh, performing a certain way. Uh, the the people problem is is hard. Hello and welcome to the PyBytes podcast, where we talk about Python, career, and mindset. We're your hosts. I'm Julian Sequeira. And I am Bob Beldebos. If you're looking to improve your Python, your career, and learn the mindset for success, this is the podcast for you. Let's get started. Welcome back, everybody, to PyBytes podcast. With uh, me here is Mike Fiedler. Mike, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm all right. Thanks so much for having me, Bob. It's really great to be here. Yeah, awesome. We're recording, right? Yeah, we're recording. Okay. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm excited to, to have you on. Uh, the, the stuff you're doing uh, with PyPI in the Python space, um, DevOps background, uh, mindset, we can cover a lot of things. But yeah, maybe uh, first of all, um, can you do a quick intro to our audience? And uh, do we have a win of the week? Sure. Uh, quick intros are always a, a challenging aspect, especially as you kind of mature in your career, because you have to pick and choose what do you want to highlight, what do you want to talk about, what what you hope will resonate with with folks. Um, so, uh, hi, Mike Fiedler. Uh, I've been working in the technology space for about thirty years now, probably even more, um, and. I've done uh, such a wide variety of different roles, positions at companies, uh, both in the United States and Israel, where I grew up. And I've done, I came out of IT support operations and help desk and kind of made my, navigated through a variety of different uh, experiences, all in the manner of learning uh, how things work, how industries work. And um, that's what has gotten me here to where I am today, where uh, right now, for the past uh, six months, I guess, I've been uh, full-time full employed at PyPI, uh, run by the Python Software Foundation, the PSF. Uh, the Python Package Index is that place that everyone pip installs or poetry installs or whatever tool you like uh, installs packages from. Some of us uh, upload packages there, and now I focus predominantly on safety and security for that uh, project, which uh, people around the world use all day long. And it's a lot of uh, fun to kind of get into the depth of what it what it is and what it can be, as well as providing a foundational uh, security for a common good. Yeah, that that's a big thing. I'm definitely going to uh, get into that. But uh, do, do you have a win of the week you want to share? Yeah, I think uh, the win of the week that I'm going to highlight is uh, around software testing. Um, testing is always uh, something that most people will think as, a, as an afterthought, uh, but it is critical in any software that is beyond a toy project. Uh, and one of the, uh, the, the Python testing tools that I use is PyTest. It's a very popular uh, PyTest, uh, Python test runner. And uh, one of the plugins uh, is a very rich ecosystem of plugins. I have one myself. It's called PyTest Socket, which helps block uh, network activity during tests. So that way, you know if your code, your test code is calling remote APIs, which is usually a bad thing, unless you want it to, and then you enable it. But another plugin that I really like that uh, had, I had not put into PyPI for a couple of years now is PyTest Randomly, where 
it will shuffle the order of the tests, every execution into a random order in order to help you find hidden state or statefulness that is preserved between tests. Good testing methodology is uh, you kind of set up your conditions, you run your test, and then you tear it all down. So that way it's kind of clean. Uh, and then you can run every single test in isolation. Uh, and this helps preserve that that guarantee by running them randomly every single time. Interesting. Is that also a plugin you wrote? No, I didn't write this one. I've, I've used it on a, a number of projects, and uh, both open and closed. And uh, I had used it on PyPI a couple of years ago and found a few uh, stateful tests. But um, this week is when I finally merged it into our main branch, where, fingers crossed, obviously, I can't run every possible random permutation ever. But uh, I think we've gotten to the bottom of some of the statefulness, and we can kind of prevent that coming into our testing methodology. Nice. Yeah, I think Brian Ockham is always hammering on uh, tests should not depend on each other, right? It's, it's just a good practice. And, uh, yeah, Brian is. If you, if you haven't listened to Brian and anything, he, he's he's the pie test person I would go to for a lot of uh, a lot of advice. Yeah. So one, don't leave the home without pie test. Two, for pie test, go to Arkan. <laughs> he has a lot of good. Uh, yeah. Well, his I, book obviously, and now he has a video course as well, right? So yeah, he's got, he's got a lot of content online. So check it out. But uh, the the I think the importance of testing. Um, I, I, I had this conversation with an engineer long ago where they said, uh, I know my code works. I tested it when I wrote it. I tested the application behavior. I, I didn't write tests for it, but I tested it. I said, yeah, that's great. I, I trust you. I believe you tested it You know, but based on the specifications. But how do you know that what you did today is going to work tomorrow? You know, you've effectively written some code that makes a, a an implicit promise that this is the way it behaves. And maybe you make a change, maybe a colleague makes a change, maybe a library makes a change. How do you know that that promise is going to be upheld in the future? And by writing tests and kind of keeping your yourself at a uh, a high testing uh, discipline, you can write high quality software that if somebody else changes a condition, a test ought to fail, and then you can decide, does the test need to be changed in order to change the promise, or whoopsie, I've made a, 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 I've broken a promise and I need to fix that. Yeah, exactly, because code braces always grow and there are always changes, and um, you just need to have that regression suite to many times, right? I've been called back, and I guess now you made <laughs> messed up somewhere. And yeah. if it wasn't for the test, then I wouldn't have known. Or uh, you know, you discover later on, and you have a disappointed customer or something. Right? Yeah, I, maybe this is part of some of my like operator background, where you know, when you, I was a sysadmin and taking application packages, you know, package jars and wars and whatever, and running them for 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 developers on on production hardware. Uh, there was the okay. Well, has it been tested? Right? Did it run through the test suite? Because you know, not being the developer involved, I was like, well, what kind of guarantees or confidences do I have that this won't break in production? And if like the change set doesn't have a uh, combined set of tests, well, then, you know, it, it, it's it's more risk than not. So uh, I think my, my testing approach probably grew out of there, but more uh, as of more recently, it's been a pleasure to be able to work on well-tested code bases 
because there's a safety net. You're you're you know flying through a trapeze with a safety net beneath you, uh, so you don't go splat. Yeah, cool. We clearly are both very passionate about testing. <laughs> Welcome back to testing code. Oh no, that's uh, Arkansas. Ah. But, <laughs> but uh, no, thanks for that win. That's uh, and that's a good reminder, right? Like uh, you cannot go wrong investing more time in testing, especially in the long run. It, it will come back. Um, I want to know about your transition into the PyPI safety and security engineer uh, role. Um, yeah, tell me a bit about how that came, how you moved into it, and what you're currently working on. Yeah, uh, so it's an interesting path. Uh, throughout my career, I've worked both individual contributor. I, I went up the management ranks. I went all the way to senior director of engineering at, at some startups and uh, enterprises, and have worked, you know, different aspects uh, between. Right, uh, as part of a manager's role, you often don't your your job is not necessarily to do the thing. It's to work with people who are supposed to do the thing. Right. I'm obviously oversimplifying a lot here. And many managers do jump in and pitch in, uh, as, as I used to until I was high enough in the uh, high up enough in the ladder to understand that it is more detrimental, uh, for me to use my time on individual contribution than it is to work on managing my folks who can improve the individual contribution for, for the company. Um, but in order to keep my you know chops active, I worked on a lot of open source because that's my own free time. That is not company critical. That is not anything. It's just something I can kind of poke at and uh, help out here and there around the world. And uh, years ago, when the um, chef community was was big, uh, and you know there is still a very large chef community, but uh, back when I was using it, and uh, there was a whole lot of you can learn how to use this tool. You can write code and then share it. And that that was like, oh, okay, so I can open source some of my code. Cool. Uh, you start sharing that and then you start looking at other people's code and seeing I can I can contribute to theirs and fix it. You know, there's a bug here that, that I'd like to use this except for this one edge case. So let me add some code. Let me write a test, hopefully, uh, and uh, and contribute back. Um, and for me, that was such a, a gratifying feeling of I'm not only kind of taking from the from the open source world, but I'm also giving back, uh, which is very critical in these overall sustainability of open source ecosystems is is engagement contribution. And it doesn't only have to be writing code. It can also be in, in GitHub issues, triage, uh, reviewing pull requests for accuracy, et cetera. There are so many things that you can do in the open source that aren't writing code. But for me, I, I got my, uh, my, my really uh, heavy start in open source back in, in Chef, contributing cookbooks, getting back into kind of policies, procedures, uh, client-side tools, et cetera. And I enjoyed it so much that when I was now working as a manager, I was looking for other software or tools that my team were using that I could go poke at and see, can I improve those software tools uh, and kind of indirectly help the team through a non-critical lens. And as, uh, as I left my last role at a startup, uh, about a year and a half ago at this point, oh, no, just over a year. Um, I, I took a break. I was like, okay, I need a need a reset, take a, a work break, figure out what I want to do next. Um, the landscape is is open. 
And at that time, I had already been contributing to PyPI. I had uh, worked on a couple different front-end features in JavaScript, which is not my first language or language of choice. I figured out some of the CSS and HTML stuff there. And it's like, oh, these are all these are all fun things that that are, again, not critical to the operation of PyPI, but they were kind of on the periphery that were like a, a good way for me to get my toes in. Uh, and... Uh, major kudos to the uh, the maintainers at the time who were very excited to have somebody contributing. Uh, I'll shout out to Dustin Ingram who recognized that hey, this person can do something. Let's ask them to do something else once they're done, right? Uh, so Dustin kind of gear you know guided me towards the next issue that he thought I could take on. Uh, so I did that for a while, and then I got invited to become a volunteer maintainer. As a volunteer maintainer, you spend whatever time you want, you know, work on the things that are interesting to you. And then uh, I was doing this for a few months, you know, at, at working from home, having a good time. And the, uh, the, the Python Software Foundation got some funding from generous donors to create a safety and security role for specifically PyPI. Uh, I was very excited about that. I threw my hat in the ring. Uh, another uh, bunch of very good qualified candidates put their names out there as well. We went through an interview cycle and uh, I got the gig and that was very exciting. Um, I started in August. Uh, I blogged about it on blog.pypi.org, which uh, I helped build up and is nice and pretty now. Um, and it was uh, it was very exciting to to be the first one and then specifically the first full-time employee for only PyPI, and then specifically to focus on safety and security. Uh, the big projects that I've been working on since, which uh, you know, one of which has been the completion of the mandatory two-factor authentication project for PyPI, uh, which just generally increases safety for the entire ecosystem as a whole, uh, minimizing the possibility for account takeovers which is, uh, it's a thing, it happens. Um, we're trying to prevent it, so play along. And then the other one has been this um, this uh, work that I've been focusing on to do the automation or provide some methodology for automation for reporting security vulnerabilities around packages on PyPI. We get a fair amount of spam, malware, garbage uploaded to PyPI um, because, again, it's a free service. It takes a few minutes to you know create an account, log in, uh, set up your 2FA. But at that point, it's it's free, right? Uh, it's it's for the common good. Some people abuse that, and that's unfortunate. But that's what you know the the line we have to navigate by providing a you know free and open ecosystem. Uh, versus, you know, should we charge people to have a PyPI account? I don't think so. That'll never fly. But, uh, you know, we have to come up with creative ways to combat the bad behaviors. So the, uh, the one that I've been working on is providing a methodology or API-driven approach for um, security scanning companies and, and trusted partners who scan every single package that gets uploaded and report it to us today. They report via email, but we're looking at how can we provide that via API and then minimize the amount of time it takes from reporters detecting until the the malware is taken down. Interesting. 
That that's a heaps heaps. Let, let's distill this a little bit. So, <laughs> yeah. first how you got here? That's interesting. So you started with open source, contributed to PyPI, gone on their radar, um, and then so yeah, it's almost like if you would have, you know, asked you like five years ago, you would be doing this. You wouldn't know, right? Because it kind of organically happened from one thing to the other, and even the security aspect. Um, I mean, it, it makes sense that that's in your background. Uh, that you have a DevOps as well, right? But that really came from another thing. So that that's interesting. Um, the work is interesting. Uh, the fact that there's now full-time staff on it is is, is awesome because that's very important. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that would only come around from the generosity of donors, right? The, the Python mm-hmm. Software Foundation is a nonprofit organization. We're, we're, not, we're not a venture-backed company or something like that that is like just piles of money. Uh, we rely on companies, organizations, individuals to uh, to kind of help f- uh, make the mission of making Python the best and you know fastest and most secure language. That's not the exact mission statement, but that's the one that I want to have in the back of my head. Uh, safe, secure, fast, all, all the all the things you want out of a uh, programming language ecosystem. Mm. Uh, that wouldn't happen without the the, the very gen- generous donors. So um, the the shout out that I would ask is anybody who works at an organization that uses Python in any fashion, and you probably do. Uh, you know, almost every company does in some department to look at how, you know what is your company's stance on open source and open source donations and and donate to the PSF. It makes these things happen. Yeah, that's a good point. Because again, this is this is really critical. <laughs> yeah. So tell me a bit about the challenges then you face in ensuring the integrity and security of Python packages. Um, yeah. Oh. I mean, where does one even start, right? Like it's such a a, a, a wide ecosystem. I think one of the the uh, important parts around the Python ecosystem, as opposed to many others, is that we have a pretty strong um, standards process for interoperability. This is also called the PEP or Python Enhancement Proposal Process. And um, this is just, again, Python is now about 30 years old. PyPI is about 20 years old conceptually. The actual code base that I work on day-to-day uh, is was re-envisioned in around 2015 and launched in 2018, something, something around those circa timelines. But the concept and the packages are, have been around for 20 years. So um, the challenge is how do we ensure that the changes that we want to make continue to work for all the people who use it and you know in modern parlance you might call that you know contract testing or api contracts uh, which is effectively what we try to do through the the python enhancement proposal for things that are uh, end user facing so all of the different api interactions that exist on PyPI for the installers, such as PIP or Poetry or any of those, uh, those move very slowly. They don't change very frequently because the cost to changing them would be very, very high. Uh, It would break a whole lot of people's workflows. um, And it's how do we minimize the impact of a given change? Um, And then the other aspect of like security is okay well how do we continue to evolve our security practices without breaking those interfaces so um you know one example is is our uh, our 2fa change that we did recently 
Um, by requiring 2FA, we also bu bucketed in requiring of uh, API tokens. Historically, again, we're dating back 20 years. Uh, you know, way back then, you didn't even need a, a you know username, password. There was no index. The index was just a list of where to download other packages. Then we got like a server, and people could just FTP files onto a server. That was great. Uh, and then we we kind of matured and got to you know smarter technologies. So we did uh, basic authentication, which again you're putting kind of a, a credential, a username and password in a encoded header. Which sure we we rely heavily on on SSL TLS in order to make sure that nobody can sniff that, but it's still a credential that you could deserialize and um, and instead. We moved on to uh, API tokens. Uh, we did API tokens in in maybe about 2019, um, and that that's when they were new. Uh, but we supported continue again, not not to break backwards compatibility. We supported using basic authentication by promoting API tokens and then making them even easier to use through some of the work that we've done through trusted publishing with. Um, with security firm uh, Trail of Bits, uh, we we got the to the point where if you're using GitHub Actions to publish your package to PyPI, you don't even need to provide a credential anymore. You used to have to provide a, a secret token, a PyPI token, into the GitHub Actions, and that's a long-lived token. If anything happens, if anything kind of gets exposed there, you don't want to you don't want that token to leak because then somebody else could upload packages your package. Uh, and that was undesirable. So with trusted publishing, we're using technologies like OpenID Connect uh, to say, we know who GitHub is. We have kind of a shared relationship with, with GitHub. And if the user has correctly set up their project on PyPI and they use the, the correct uh, GitHub action flow on GitHub Actions, GitHub Actions will identify itself to PyPI, will validate that. It will then request a short-lived API token, give that back to your GitHub Action. GitHub Actions will then use that short-lived token to publish packages, and then the token expires. So even if anything malicious happens in that small window or after, that token is invalid. So these are kind of steps towards a safer way to do this. Uh, we've had... Uh, work done to get a Google uh, OIDC very similar to, to GitHub. Uh, it's not live yet. It's live on test PyPI. Uh, and we also have some uh, initial work for the active state platform from them. They're contributing this. So again, this is all being done by volunteer contributors once we kind of set the pattern. Uh, so if you know you're running a publishing platform and you want to you know enable OIDC connect then hey the 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 code is there send us a pull request yeah so it seems that that integrations and partnerships are critical to your work right so there they are in as much of i i need to make sure that i'm reviewing their contributions um part of my role is not to currently reach out and and kind of get them to to do these right now because it's like if they don't want to do it they don't have to do it right um the partnerships that i am pursuing are the ones with the security research firms or or kind of malware scanner type uh companies who are graciously and generously volunteering their time um on their platforms to help us secure our platform 
Yeah, because that was my other question. Like, how do you keep up, right? Like with the security stuff, there's a lot of unknown unknowns, and it's almost isn't it an an eternal battle to stay one step ahead of the hackers? Always, right? <laughs> uh, and sometimes you're one step behind, and you got to catch up, right? Some it's 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 a challenge. Uh, I think a lot of it comes down to kind of the partnerships that we have. So you know, right today, most of PyPI runs on top of Amazon Web Services, uh, who are Pretty pretty good with their security paradigms uh, and our uh, our content delivery network infrastructure partner is Fastly. Uh, huge shout out to them. We could not survive without them. Uh, they carry ninety nine percent of all the the traffic for packages because it's the same packages, right? Um, but uh, they are an excellent partner. Always looking to. Uh, work with them on newer ideas or implementations that could, you know, mutually benefit both of us. Yeah, cool. So if I shift a little bit then to the Python developer, because, you know, security uh, starts with the developers as well, right? Um, any advice how we as Python developers can be more security aware, adopt safe coding practices? Maybe you have a couple of tips there. Yeah, I guess there's there's never a perfect answer to that question right uh, like you said there's there's it's always evolving um there's if you can afford a chief information security officer at your company hire one if they can afford a team to run security hire them right if if you can hire a team of analysts to sit there and pour through things hire hire all of that but most of us can't do that so i think the uh the the part that i try to rely on heavily is uh, being aware of, you know, your dependency chain, right? Software dependencies are a thing, right? Like you could write all of the code in your applications and stack yourself. You could. You could also invent your own language, which some people do. Um, you can do that. And then you are on the hook for all of that, which is fine if that's the trade-off you want to make. Most businesses would rather execute by picking some open source software that largely accomplishes 80% of what they're trying to do, and then sprinkle their 20% on top. So dependencies are a reality um, because it accelerates our, our goal to the, you know, our it accelerates our accomplishment to the end game. And as such, we should be aware of those dependencies and when they kind of fall out of date or if they have uh, published security advisories. So I try to do a little due diligence on um, dependencies before inclusion. Um, there's some resources out there like uh, Safety or PyUp or Sneak um, or Libraries.io, which we link to from PyPI, that uh, will show you a little bit around kind of the package, the metadata. You can then go explore their repository, look at how many people are there. Uh, there is work from the OSSF, the Open um, Open Source Security Foundation, uh, to develop a scorecarding tool. Uh, they, they have a scorecarding tool, but to continue to evolve it, where you as a end user could run a scorecard or see a scorecard for a given project and then make a decision, make an informed decision. In just 12 weeks, PyWrites elevates you from Python coder to confident developer. Build real-world applications, enhance your portfolio, earn a professional certification showcasing tangible skills, and unlock career opportunities you might not even imagine right now. Apply now at pybit.ds slash pdm. 
So part of the dependency chain is also keeping them up to date. Um, I use GitHub, uh, and they have a great uh, Dependabot offer. Uh, there's other solutions out there like RenovateBot and other other companies, Mend Renovate, they renamed. And um, just to continue to be aware of this package has had a security vulnerability, and here's its updated patch. Oh, okay. Take a look, review it, see if it applies, uh, and then you know build deploy, build test deploy, get that out the door. So that way you minimize the time you would be running a potentially vulnerable package. Um, the other aspects are around you know static analysis. You can always review code with tools. There are a bunch out there. One that I like is called Bandit. Uh, where you can run it against a code base. Uh, there's even a PyTest plugin to run it. There is a pre-commit plugin that'll run it. Uh, there's a variety of ways to execute this static analysis to um, kind of confirm what's going on uh, and tell you, okay, you're using a SHA-1 algorithm, which is known to be broken. Uh, are you certain you want to use a SHA-1? Uh, you know, this might be for a cryptographic purpose. Don't do not do that. So Bandit will surface things like that. Uh, which is very helpful. Yeah, those are great tips. Thanks. And uh, also, yeah, Bandit, just put it in your pre-commit, right? And now it will run on point commit and and it, you, yeah, it will probably shout at a couple of things you might have not yeah. thought about. Yeah. I think um, it's a very akin to like any other linter, right? You want to yeah. keep little bits of annoyance out of your code base before they become a problem. So if you can run a tool early enough in the pipeline so it's not in production that will warn you this could be a problem and then gives you, the developer, a decision point. Like a lot of people complain about linters and, oh, the linter forces me to do something. That's a rule. You can disable the rule. You can change the rule if you and your team agree. But like the whole point is that these are some practices that we think are good. Uh, you don't have to adopt them unless your company says you have to, in which case, <laughs> that's that's a different policy problem. But ultimately, uh, you know, being aware of secure practices out there uh, are is is important. Um, the if if you're doing web application, there's the OWASP top ten uh, list that they kind of review and revise periodically, usually once a year, once every two years. Uh, where they'll call out some of the biggest, uh, you know, important vulnerabilities in web applications, such as, you know, SQL injection, right? If if SQL injection is a very common pattern where if you take untrusted input, such as a search box, right? A lot of sites have a search box. And if you take input there and then ran that just straight as without any standardization or validation in a search in your database, that, you know, attackers might do a, a drop table, a... a an update, uh, do something malicious, and then you'd have a bad day. Um, and so, you know, looking for opportunities in in your code where it's like, oh well, we we this will work, but this leaves a door open for some attacker. Uh, maybe we should try and close that or make it a little harder to get to. Um, are always good good options. Yeah, and I think that's a good reminder as well <clears throat> to not reinvent the wheel, right? Like uh, especially in web development. If you use a framework like Django, there's a lot of security features already in there, right? Like you have this whole SQL injection problem is already resolved by how they handle forms, right? Uh, the forms have their CRSF token uh, right there. It doesn't let you submit the form unless you have that token in your template. There's the security checklist. There are settings and settings.py that that 
so you know and and if you would build all that from yourself yeah then then you're on the hook and uh you're probably not that knowledgeable <laughs> 20 years of whatever the django framework is around and the security um practices and and specialists that have bend over it you know um, yeah, i'd say i'd say the best the best 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 thing that one can do is periodically hire a security firm to audit right figure out what you want audited and then have them audit because they're going to be the experts they're going to be those those members on your team that aren't you that aren't experts or aren't um necessarily the um looking at the same problem with the existing context by having new folks take a look at it there's also a great opportunity for new hires on a team or new team members uh is these folks don't have the context they're looking at it with fresh eyes you know, the things that you might have glossed over or say, you know what, that's probably fine. They might call out and say, why do we do that that way? And that's a great opportunity for you to either say, sit down and say, yeah, I don't know why we do it that way. Maybe we shouldn't. Uh, or uh, here's the reason. Let's document the reason in line so that way the next person understands why we're doing it this way. Uh, so that way the conditions under which you've kind of made an uh exception are clear in the future yeah well it's a fascinating world the whole security thing <laughs> i do want to pivot a bit to mindset um you mentioned the puzzling problems in your bio and uh here asking for a story uh, an example of a oh boy. particularly challenging problem you've solved in your career can be anything right oh how boy. did you approach it and what listen lessons uh did you learn I guess persistence and whatnot that our audience can benefit from because you have the tech, but you know, complex problems also involve a lot of mindset. Do, do you? I mean, if you have an example, otherwise we just get to the next. Well, I'll say for for any managers out there or people aspiring to be managers, uh, you know, uh, if you love software development because of coding, right? Managing is a whole different ballgame. It's a very different career choice. Um, there is advantage to having a background there. But people are the most puzzling problem of all. And I say problem with a tongue in cheek. People aren't the problem. But learning how to navigate, like reading code and debugging code is so easy. Finding a memory leak is so easy compared to understanding another team member's motivation or why they're you know, doing a certain thing or uh, performing a certain way. Uh, the, the people problem is, is hard uh, and it requires a, a certain degree of investment and empathy and to like learning people, right? We all spent a lot of time learning our editor shortcuts or our code, uh, you know, semantics. Uh, people are more complicated than anything you can imagine. Uh, just because you're a person doesn't mean you understand the person next to you. So yeah. uh, for the, for those on the management track, uh, but for a, a more technical puzzling problem, um, this this was a, a lesson I learned the hard way many years ago when uh, this, you know, I did the thing that you should not do. Um, it was a uh, it was an early console cluster uh, that was running uh, the configuration management backend for our fleet of instances. And um, I needed to update some configuration on all of our cluster uh, uh, primary instances, like the the leaders of the cluster. I uh, forget the semantics, apologies, but uh, the uh, configuration was, okay, you need to edit, you know, the line in the Etsy config file and restart the process. 
And this is before uh, I was using configuration management on these particular files. So I was like, all right, well, I need to edit it on all five. Let me open up five parallel SSH windows, right? Same thing, edit it in all of them and issue a restart. Uh, and then after I hit enter, I remembered, oh, uh, you you should not restart all members of a consensus system at the same time. So we had five instances. They all received the same restart, and they all restarted and said, "Hey, I'm not the I'm not the you know primary of this system. Uh, somebody else must be the primary. Let me go ask around to see who they are." And none of them would would say, "I'm primary." I'm you know there was no tiebreaker back then. This is. I think console version 0 0.5 or something. I think they've fixed it long since, but it was like this moment of none of the cluster will boot up, no systems will receive their configuration, everything is like down. Um, so it was a, a puzzling problem of like, okay, when all of these are like forced down, how do you how do you bring them back up? How do you force them back up? And it took it took some like really hard thinking of let's read the source code of why these binaries are operating a certain way. Uh, and back then, I think it's still written in Go, and that was not my strong suit. Still isn't. So I was like, ah, I'm walking through the darkness and trying to find out. Uh, I had a bunch of folks helping me out with this. It was a really good team. Uh, we eventually got it restarted by kind of faking the state on one of the instances to say, ignore the other you know, machines, assume everything is okay, uh, but you'll be leader. And then once that came up, it was like, okay, bring up everybody else and they'll join the cluster and then you know, cycle the whole thing out because it was all messy at that point. <laughs> but it was, it was in production, right? Oh yeah, yeah, this was, yeah, don't do what I did, right? Like this was <laughs> the, the truly the wrong choice to do. Um, Today, it would be a, a much different approach of, okay, you deploy the configuration selectively to a minor volume of the cluster, restart those, make sure everything is back up, and then cycle through kind of an eventual rotation process. But it was like, oh, the minute I hit enter, I was like, oh, I, I messed up. <laughs> this yeah. is bad. How do you stay cool in that situation? Because it oh. sounds like um, you really had to just, you know, cool down and stay focused, read the source code, engage the right people. Uh, that's some, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, right there. <laughs> I'll, I'll lean on some of the, like the DevOps, the, the sysadmin, the, the, you know, operator methodologies back then of like, yeah, you, you need to call an incident commander. You have to have somebody run the chat room. You got to get people together and just say, here, here's where we are. We can argue about how, how, badly I screwed up later, right? Like we can, we can, but right now we have a situation to deal with. So let's deal with that, right? Uh, because we can run around screaming with our heads, you know, flying off the hook, but that's not going to solve the problem. So let's, let's solve the problem. And then we can get into a, a conference room and, you know, yell at me or drink beers. Nobody yelled at me. It was, it's fine yeah. because it's like, this happens, production incidents happen. And the learning for everybody is, yeah, don't don't mess with a consensus-based system like that, right? Like yeah. historically, if that was a bunch of web servers, yeah, of course, you edit a bunch of the same file, you restart them all. It's a web server; they're they're independent. But because these systems were linked, it was it was uh oh. Um, but uh, the the remaining calm in the storm, I think that's just uh, something that again you have to practice. Uh, you have to know 
uh, that, well, hopefully you know that you work at a place that has the like psychological safety of, well, I'm not going to get fired over this. I might get a, a talking to of like, let's figure out how this happened, why this happened, why I made those choices, but I'm not getting fired because these things happen, right? I was trying yep. to do the right thing. I wasn't trying to take down prod. Um, so I think having a lot of working places that have good psychological safety is important to remaining calm under pressure. Yeah, those are great points. Yeah, exactly. There should be room for failure because inevitably failure will happen and how you're then going to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Cool. Yeah. Uptime of 100% all the time every day is very nice, but you haven't learned how to deal with failure. So when failure happens, you kind of, you know, might lose your your cool. Whereas if you periodically have an error budget and you do fail a little bit here and there, or you introduce failure as a testing methodology, um, you learn how to interact, how to operate under pressure and how to recover. Yeah. And if you see somebody very skilled and experienced in the field, I don't believe that's only from successes, right? Like uh, there's a whole bunch of fail failures to back that up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the phrase I've always liked is the way you get good at something is you start out by being bad. Because none of us right. were born with any of this, right? Like nobody was born writing Python, unless it's Guido, which he might have been. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but we all had to learn. And the way we learn to walk is we crawl and then we try and stand up and then we fall a little bit. And then, you know, we're close enough to the ground at that point where <laughs> falling doesn't hurt as much. So like the the risk is is not that high, but the reward of, oh, okay, I can continue to learn. I can learn how to walk. I can learn how to run. I can learn how to drive, right? All of these things are learning opportunities and you make some mistakes and that the way you recover from those mistakes is truly, I think, a good sense of who we are and how, what our character is. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Like mistakes are going to happen, but how do you react to them? Are you going to go in victim mode and complain and play the blame game or you just deal with the issue? And mm -hmm. I, I, I share that experience with you that there is room for failure if you can um, act upon it professionally and, and fix it. And then, then actually, you might come out as the hero, even. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, overall, I will say, you come out more yeah. mature and experienced. You know, you've yeah. learned. Yeah, I, I will say you, you mentioned like don't play the blame game, right? So very often, uh, folks will misconstrue blame with accountability, right? Like blame is is often also associated with shame, right? If if I call if if you and I work on a team and you make a mistake and I call you out in front of the team, that's not going to feel good to you, right? Uh, the team aren't going to say, "What the hell is Mike doing?" Right? Like that's not cool, uh, and it's not it's not good. Accountability, you know, can be handled again as from a, like a manager to another team member is. You know, let's take it aside. Let's talk through why these choices happened. Here's the impact. How are we going to try and mitigate this in the future? Uh, this particular thing, right? Like, let's let's talk about that. That's accountability, right? It's yeah, my, you know, you did something. It happened. That's a fact. It's it's not. I'm not blaming. I'm saying that yeah, this happened, right? This is the truth. This is the history historical fact of the matter, um, but. It, if we can kind of separate this notion of blame from accountability, I think we can re-encourage people to both take and 
uh, request accountability from their teammates. Yep. Maybe we should open a PR to uh, change the get blame command. I think that that's already get annotate. <laughs> is that is that no longer? <laughs> I mean, get blame exists. I use it all the time, yeah. but yeah. Uh, it's get, get annotate. It has a slightly different semantic, but it's yeah. it's there. The reason I use get blame is because you know my my yeah. muscle memory. Yeah, muscle memory. Yeah, uh, cool. It's good to know yeah. that there, yeah. there's an alias that then has been interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're coming up on time. Uh, thanks for sharing. This is uh, is really cool insight and inspiring. Um, so I have two more questions. Looking towards the future, what trends or advancements do you foresee in the realm of Python security? And uh, how can we prepare? And feel free to loop in AI. But uh, Yeah, I, uh, AI is going to solve problem. all the problems. Uh, we we went how long, Bob, without mentioning AI? Oh, man. I was going to not do it, but uh, I, I, but uh, uh, open question. It wouldn't be a it wouldn't be a podcast without mentioning AI, um, and AI wouldn't be AI if it wasn't per, for Python. So there there you have it. Um, but uh, in the realm of software security, some of the things where where I I foresee the future. Um, so uh, I foresee a greater adoption of trusted publishing as a practice. We've seen it picked up not only in Python. We've seen it picked up uh, by Ruby Gems as a, a same way of just you know use GitHub Actions and they will transact with the with the platform and securely minimize the amount of tokens that are just floating around in the universe, which is great. Um, I'd say uh, we're we're seeing a desire for more and more um, folks to have software bills of materials or SBOM SBOM. Uh, as a way to ask their themselves, what software is in my application stack? What versions? What licenses? Like, what is in this? Because very often you can look at a container and or uh, an application running on a server, and it's not always apparent all the ingredients that went in to make this beautiful cake, right? Uh, and you could on demand, spend a lot of time to dig through and find out every single one, or you could automate a lot of that. So I think we're going to be seeing a lot more work automating the um, the, the creation of software bills of materials. So that way, any package you download will contain or could contain this list of, sure, i I'm written in Python and I'm a package, but I rely on these other three packages and here's what they have to say and what, uh, you know, their, um, their extensions and licenses are. So that way companies and in individuals can know what they're putting in to their, their systems. Um, if you're, if you're you or others are more curious, uh, I'd recommend you follow uh, Seth Larson's blog. He's the uh, security developer in residence for the uh, the Python Software Foundation, and he's been working a lot on software bill of materials stuff. Um, and you know he's he's been an excellent author on a lot of the topics. And I'm just doing them a little little uh, early taste of what that could what that is. But he goes into a much uh, bigger uh, detail, deeper, bigger, much more yeah. detail uh, yeah. uh, as to what uh, these are and uh, how they apply and why they are important. Yeah, good to know. Cool. Is there is there another resource we, we can follow? Blog at PyPI, I guess? And uh... Yeah, blog.pypi.org is a fun read. It's very pretty. Uh, 
it's uh it's a lovely uh resource that we the administrators use to kind of publish uh some insights around around what is happening specifically to IPI as big changes happen um and uh i'd say listen to some of the other you know python podcasts talk python real python uh they're they're all really good resources to just kind of stay abreast of python related topics yeah indeed indeed cool Lastly, what are you reading? Any book what recommendation? Um, so I was just gifted. Ah, I can't read the title, so I haven't read it yet. Um, but uh, what am I reading right now? Uh, right now, I'm, I just finished rereading the Silo series uh, by an author named Hugh Howie. Uh, it's a three-book uh, series, science fiction um, they have taken it to uh, Apple TV and made a television series out of it on on Apple TV. Uh, it's it's quite good. It's different than the books, but uh, after watching the series, I sat down and I said, "Yeah, a lot of this feels different." So I reread the books, uh, and it was a, a lot of fun. Uh, I'm considering rereading uh, Foundation by Isaac Asimov now that that too has turned into a television series. Uh, to just you know reread some of the early science fiction concepts and see you know how how much has changed in the 30 or 40 years since yeah that those are interesting i've not read um what's his name isomov isomov yeah isaac asimov yeah 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 he has many many books right <laughs> yeah. yeah uh if you're looking for an intro to to asimov i'd i'd look at the um the uh, Elijah Bailey series. Um, th these are, you know, um, Elijah Bailey is a human detective and uh, he pairs up with a robotic uh, android or humanoid robot in order to investigate a murder of a human, which robots are supposed to not be able to do. So uh, it's a fun, uh, you know, kind of m murder mystery, but futuristic with robots. Uh, awesome. And it was written long before a lot of our modern AI stuff existed. I think the audience will appreciate that. Um, I got to link, of course, all, all your socials and stuff, but do you have any uh, preferred one where people can reach out? Yeah, uh, I'd say Mastodon is the place. I'm on the Hackyderm web, uh, web server for Mastodon, uh, hackyderm.io, and I'm at Mike the Man there. Um, that's probably the easiest. Uh, I'm on GitHub. I'm on... Uh, discord uh yeah I'm, I'm on all the different uh platforms are you on PyBytes? uh what is PyBytes? a circle community oh no i'm not on circle communities yet uh in fact i only learned about circle community from listening to your podcast yesterday yeah. i didn't know about it <laughs> well if you decide to join then uh, people can hit you up there as well but hey messed it on it is right mostly yeah mostly yeah, yeah. awesome well uh thanks for hopping on uh, really fun chat and uh, yeah a lot of uh, golden nuggets so i appreciate it awesome thank you so much for having me it's been so much fun yeah all right have a good day thanks take care all right. we hope you enjoyed this episode to hear more from us go to pybyte slash friends that is pybit.es slash friends and receive a free gift just for being a friend of the show and to join our thriving community of python programmers go to pybytes slash community. That's pybit.es forward slash community. We hope to see you there and catch you in the next episode.